Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss. I'm so pleased you're spending part of your day with me. We have a really big show today, so let's get right to it. Later, Ethan Liu, author of Field Notes from a Pandemic, A Journey Through a World Suspended, joins us to talk about his book and his experiences as he hopscotched around the world, witnessing the very early stages of a virus that he says will forever change the world as we know it. That's later in the show. First up, we're joined by Sam Roberts, who joins us via Zoom from his home in Montreal. His band, the aptly named Sam Roberts Band, has been nominated for 14 Juno Awards. They've won six, including Artist of the Year, twice. They've been very busy since the world pressed pause back in March. The band's song, We're All In This Together, became an anthem of sorts for various promos featuring frontline workers and Canadians alike. They've just put their finishing touches on a new album and played a part in each and every charitable opportunity they could to help artists and Canadians across the board. Sam Roberts' band have a new album. It's called All of Us. It's their first album in four years. I began this interview with Sam Roberts by asking a question I love asking musicians who are used to performing live. There is so little live music happening right now that I've been asking people, if you have a musical memory that pops into your head, maybe a concert that you went to, maybe a concert you did yourself, that in these days when we don't have any live music to go see comes to mind. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I have a few sort of personal memories in terms of concerts that I attended. Uh, you know, one of my favorite bands is the Charlatans uh, from the UK and going to see them play at the Spectrum and being just so tightly packed in uh, to still my favorite venue, rock and roll venue uh, of all time. It's now, long, now no longer with us and neither are concerts. So, but uh, just that thought, it, of being so tightly packed in seems so, you know, strange and foreign at this point. But what comes from that when you're in the moment, is just this, again, it's kind of just a letting go of yourself uh, and becoming a part of just another part of this crowd. You know, uh, I always look at it as a community. Now, when, now I remember that and I try to sort of, I seek that out where I try to create the same environment when I'm on stage now. I remember so specifically being in that crowd and just, you know, having my arm around this stranger next to me. And there's so few things in, in this world that make you feel like that. We're all sort of in our own lane all the time. And you go to a concert and all of a sudden that's, you're, now you're just part of, uh, of the sea. I mean, it, like, uh, it, it feels like liquid is a more, is the most accurate way of describing it. You're just sort of a drop in a pool all of a sudden. And there's an incredible feeling that comes with that, you know? And then if I look to our own experiences on stage, playing at a thing like SARS stock in 2003 with half a million people packed into one field, I mean, literally feels like the most impossible thing, uh, in, in the world at the moment, you know? Do you think that that perspective is something that you'll take forward when live music starts again? You've had some time to think about it. Do you think your shows will be different? I mean, I think it's going to be really hard not to just um, play with complete abandon at every moment. It's going to be hard to hold anything back, I think, um, when we do get a chance to go back on tour. You know, we, we've, we've played a couple of shows at... Uh, 
drive-ins. Uh, we have a few coming up. Uh, they are, I was so surprised at my, my emotional reaction to being on stage again, because there is a sort of feeling of, I don't know, you're on tour night after night, you're trying to give every town that you go to the best of you, but you know somehow that uh, maybe last night's was a little better than, I don't know why, what's missing tonight, you know, what, what, why don't I have that fifth gear or sixth gear tonight that I felt like I had yesterday. And when we got on stage, uh, we played the Ottawa Booze Fest in the middle of the summer for, you know, 400 cars and the people within. And I don't know, I don't remember being that excited to be on stage. And I just looking around at my bandmates and everybody just had grinning ear to ear. And, you know, I think it's going to be the case when you do go back on tour that we'll find that fifth and sixth gear every night, uh, no matter what. There will, there will never be an excuse to not fully appreciate, you know, the opportunity to play again. Or listen again, as an audience member, I'll tell you, I live in Toronto. I walked around the corner uh, a few months in, probably three, four months into being in isolation. And someone was playing guitar on the street and they weren't great. They were around the corner. It didn't sound all that great. They were singing badly, all that kind of thing. But I got quite emotional because I hadn't heard any live music at all for three weeks or three months rather. And music videos are one thing you can throw on a concert video. It's not the same thing as hearing someone responding and playing live. It just isn't. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think people have recognized that for sure. I mean, it's, it's something we don't necessarily try to define all, all that often. Why do we have, why does, why does music continue to be played and yeah. continue to be performed? I mean, it is, it's essential to the human experience. And if you take it away, you realize that it's like missing a sort of, uh, you know, cosmic limb from, uh, you know, it's already difficult enough to explain why we're all here, but music helps, <laughs> helps that. You know, and it's why, again, it's why it persists and it's why it's so important. And there's no, you know, I don't doubt that you had an, um, I feel the same way. I see somebody, you know, picking up a guitar now and I'll, I'll stop and listen in a way that I didn't before. And again, it's just, you know, somebody, there's a part of it that's sharing, you know, it's a part of it that that person is sharing with you. And you, and uh, I think, again, it's, it's a beautiful part of, our sort of human experience and and when you, when it's gone you you really miss it you're listening to my interview with sam roberts of the sam roberts band we're talking about his new album all of us in stores now well i think you went a long way to keeping people happy with music with the isolation jubilation sensation uh when you re-recorded we're all in this together uh where did that idea come from uh, it was the first week we just finished making the record actually in, in the studio and, and it's sitting around with my bandmates. I think part of the, the, uh, the conversation in that week leading right up to lockdown, like the, the real start of lockdown was how, how can you contribute and how can you do something to, at that point it was just about lifting people's spirits. Again, it was, you know, there was this new part of the population that we were starting to, see and try to show our appreciation for the frontline workers for the for the first time we'd never even really you know frontline was always a military term uh expression and all of a sudden it's like the guy at your local grocery store is is a hero putting his life on the line and and so i think for a lot of musicians and just people in general you're we're trying to figure out a way to do something to, to elevate people's spirits 
And then I get home and I'm like, oh man, I'm going to be spending a lot of time with my kids uh, for the foreseeable future. We're going to have to put these guys to work. And uh, so, yeah, we did some rehearsals, some better than others for sure. And then after about 300 takes, we got the version that you saw. <laughs> but we broke up, the band broke up, you know, it was that or it was that or therapy, like a life of well, uh, family therapy. So. That's just the same. It, it's that with uh, Ray and Dave Davies, you know, all great family bands. They just, yeah. they, they can't stay together forever. Potent while they last, but man, just you got to know when uh, when enough is enough. Now, I know that you write all the music and lyrics for your music by yourself. How important is it for you to write your own music? Uh, I mean, you know, I, I could define it as important, but it's more essential than that. It's just something that I've always done, and I don't really question why I do it. Obviously, now I kind of have to put it into a uh, sort of quote-unquote professional uh, focus, I suppose. And there's a lot riding on the success or lack of success of what I, you know, kind of cook up in my basement. But uh, yeah, it's just something that I've always done. And I think writing songs can take a lot of different forms. You can sit and write a song on an acoustic guitar and, and uh, you know, Write a, few, write a melody and, and that's a song too. But for me, it's always been about trying to, it's seeing, a, I guess, the full picture and allowing myself to make a lot of mistakes along the way. But hopefully at the end of that exploration of chasing ideas down, you've come up with, with a good song. And yeah, so it, it's extreme. It's again, it's, it's more important. I can't even say how important it is. It's just kind of how, how I've always seen music and my relationship with music. When you're exploring all the possibilities of a song, do you think about how it will translate live? Uh, is that something that occurs to you or is just the song is the song and you'll figure all that out later? It's a little bit of both. I mean, you can't help but knowing that you're going to go on tour, knowing that you're going to be performing this, uh, this music, it can't help but creep into the process. It's like, is this going to work? Is it, can we do this? Can we, do we have enough hands in the band to, to pull this off? And then you kind of have to quickly put that aside or forget about it in the in sort of intervening uh, time period. The barometer is my own emotional connection to what I'm doing. If I feel uh, moved by something, you know, that's coming out of a keyboard or a guitar or singing something, then I chase it and I'll keep going until I hit a dead end when it stops moving me. And then I might come back a bit and switch directions. And again, it's always just chasing a, you're chasing a feeling, I guess, in a vague way more than uh, anything specific. And when you're doing that, you don't have time to think about the tour or anything like that. You're just sort of trying to keep up with this thing. And then after that, now we're at the stage, you know, in the last few weeks, actually, getting back into the rehearsal space with this record and figuring out, okay, what can we do that's going to be just like the record and what are we going to have to reinvent? That's kind of part of the fun of the whole process is knowing that the songs aren't going to be the same and you're going to give them a new, a new life. We're midway through my conversation with Sam Roberts of the Sam Roberts Band. They have a new album out called All of Us. 
We're talking about songwriting, and here's a guy who knows a thing or two about songwriting, having written big hits like Them Kids and Detroit 67. The new album, All of Us, is jam-packed with great songs, so I asked him about the emotional connection that he feels towards songs that he knows he's going to be living with for many years to come. Are there songs that... When you think back to the first couple of albums, now that you're seven albums in, do you think back and go, oh man, I don't want to play that one. I loved it when I wrote it, but I don't want to play it anymore. Is there, you don't have to give me song titles, but is there anything like that or, or are they all your babies? Yeah, but yeah, I mean, both. <laughs> it's both, you know, they are. Yes, I feel that way about some of the songs for sure. But like your own, you know, sometimes you don't, they might be your children, but you don't want to see your children 24 hours a day. Sometimes it's time to put them out in the backyard and, you know, let them run wild. Right. So yeah, I, I definitely feel, and, and you also have your problem, you know, your, your sort of black sheep songs, your, your, your problem children too, who just <laughs> don't cooperate no matter what you do, you can push and pull them in any different direction, trying to make them make sense. And yet somehow they'll fight you with, you know, especially playing live. There's just some songs that for whatever reason, we just can't play live. And, or they don't feel right when you play them live. And those songs will be put to bed for long periods of time. And then 10 years later, you're like, all right, let's give it another shot. Let's see if something's changed. And then, like, nope, still a problem. <laughs> let's leave that one. And then the other ones where, you know, to your point, you've just played them too many times. And like planting crops, you can't just, you know, keep planting in the same field all this. Not that I'm, a, I'm, like, I'm not a farmer at all. I actually, kill almost every plant I ever grow. But this is probably because I plant the same thing too many times. But, right. you know, I, I think you have to give a song time and space uh, and then come back to it. And hopefully you found the, uh, you're like, oh yeah, I, I like playing this one. I like the way it makes me feel when we perform it. On one of the album's uh, songs, the album's called All of Us. One of the songs is called Wolf Tracks. And you sing a line that says, in the darkest times, we're running for the light. Was that written during the pandemic? It's definitely reflective of what's happening now, but it was written before. Uh, but I think it's one of those sort of uh, statements or, or sentiments that can apply to any, any given period. I mean, it seems like things are particularly... I don't want to say dark because that just implies a lack of hope and, and, you know, sort of succumbing to pessimism, but uh, they're darker than they have been. And uh, we're looking for a way forward. And that's, again, that's kind of what music offers you in a sense is uh, a chance to look at something closely and to feel it. And then hopefully again, to find, if not a solution, then at least offer a glimpse of what a potential future with hope Mm -hmm. it can be and and that line that you bring up i think is you know that that could just be you in your own a tuesday morning just lost in the routine you know and wondering how you can you know bring your life closer mm -hmm. to the place that you want it to be so but yeah it seems like this whole record now is being in my mind too I'm, i experience it very much in the context of what we're living through globally. And, uh, and I think even the album title, all of us was decided, that was one of the few things that was actually decided after the sort of start of lockdown and the pandemic was just this feeling of connectedness with the entire world, not just this group or that group. This is truly one of the first universal experiences that we've had and uh, it felt like the, 
you know, even in making music, you had to address that, the things that we all share. You're listening to my interview with Sam Roberts of the Sam Roberts Band. They have a new album in stores right now called All of Us. It's been four years since the last album. I know you've been busy. Uh, why take four years off in between albums of the Sam Roberts Band? Yeah, it wasn't, it didn't feel like it was off. And then to be honest, it just kind of flew by. Yeah. And we toured our last record for two full years, which uh, uh, was a good thing. It, you know, it's, it, if a record can carry you that far, it's hard to just say, okay, guys, let's, let's, let's pull the plug on this one and, and move on. I mean, there's all, I'd say after about 18 months, you start feeling that way. You're like, okay, it's time to start uh, thinking about new music. And then by the time you get that other sort of record uh, under, fully under construction, you're fully committed to it. Another six months have gone by, and next thing you know, yeah, you're staring, staring down the barrel of a four-year gap between records. But uh, and I, to be honest, too, I, I, you know, I, I reworked this record a couple of times to till I felt like it was uh, uh, making me feel. Again, it's kind of always it sounds selfish, but it's like, does it make me feel the way I want to feel? And if if it does, then hopefully that will reflect how other people feel about it too. And, and it took me a while to get to that place, uh, especially just in this day and age, you just never know how many, how many ch more opportunities you get to make music. It's a really uh, you know, tumultuous business at the best of times. And so put everything that you have into your opportunities. And this felt like that. It's like, okay, if it takes another year, so be it. But let's just make sure we put the right record out. Well, you're going to have to live with it. You're going to have to tour with it. You're going to have to, you know, yeah. you want it to be right. That's it. You know, and we've, we've, uh, you know, I don't want to say regret is, is a, you know, uh, a constant sort of factor in it, but for sure, it's, it's almost impossible to do anything like this uh, perfectly or to, perfectly to your, uh, you know, your demands, but uh a little bit of extra time. I don't know. I, you know, I kind of float back and forth too. Sometimes I feel like go in there and make a record in 10 days and see what comes out and let it be, you know, you know, warts and all just, you know, that kind of amazing chaos that, uh, that great rock and roll records are built on too. And then other times it's like, no, don't, don't rush it. Take a step back from time to time, allow something to just sit and breathe for a while. Uh, and then come back and revisit and see if it still makes you feel the way you want it to feel. And uh, this was definitely one of those. My guest, Ethan Liu, is a journalist whose work has appeared in The Globe and Mail, The Guardian, The Toronto Star, The Walrus, and The Washington Post. He's broken stories about the Canadian spy agency's secret briefing to Parliament, the snubbing of Sri Lanka by the country's Prime Minister, and the possible non-depiction of the future King Charles on Canadian banknotes. This year was supposed to see the publication of his first book, Once a Bitcoin Miner, Scandal and Turmoil in the Cryptocurrency Wild West. But the pandemic pushed that release into next year, as it did so many other books. But he still has a book in stores right now. It's called Field Notes from a Pandemic, a journey through a world suspended, and was inspired by two articles he wrote for Maclean's magazine after a January visit with his ailing grandfather in Beijing allowed him to witness the very earliest stages of COVID-19, a virus, he says, that will forever change the world as we know it. 
The book says that over decades, globalization has crafted a world painfully sensitive and susceptible to shocks like this pandemic. He examines the virus's beginnings and how it spread and the unprecedented measures to contain it. He also looks at past pandemics in other cities and how they shaped the world and has an argument for why this one is different. Field Notes from a Pandemic Journey Through a World Suspended is a timely look at how the virus has transformed the world. Here's Ethan Liu via Skype from his home. When you left China, you thought that you had escaped the worst of the pandemic, the worst of what was happening. What was your frame of mind when you discovered that it was spreading so quickly? I was definitely shocked by that. I think um, nobody at the time knew how serious it would get. When I, when I left China, when I went to Singapore, and when I, when I went to Singapore from Germany throughout that period, Germany was holding uh, soccer matches with tens of thousands of fans. And president, uh, the, pres the French president and his wife, they went to the theater. And as I write in the book, I think amid the bustle of everyday life, no one could hear the, the low hum of the looming menace. And I think they say when people go bald, you lose 50% of your hair before you actually realize. And I, I think the world did not realize that this was a big deal until it already became such a big deal. And you traveled through hot zones around the world. So you've got, I think, a very unique perspective uh, on this. How are they different from one another as you traveled from zone to zone? And how are they the same? Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a very good question. I, I think clearly from what we have seen and heard, China is the, is the big outlier it was able to clamp down very quickly and you know in china when the government tells you to jump you ask how high and i i haven't actually been to the united states but uh, that that is uh, clearly the the opposite that happened there where when the government orders a lockdown it tells people to put on masks where that is a in, that is an inherently individualistic society and it's it's hard to get people to I guess, move for collective health in the, in the same way as, uh, as that happened in China. But um, it's, quite, it's quite surprising and quite eerie how everywhere it did start becoming the same. There, there was a time when, when I think we thought that what they did in China, it's, it's not possible elsewhere. Um, the, you have to take into account individual liberties. But uh, in Europe, and they, they did exactly that. The, I remember one day a friend and I were in a pub eating schnitzels, a very packed pub. Just a day or two after that, the pub was empty, the streets were empty, and the downtown was a desert. And there's a, there's a writer in the Atlantic, he wrote that um, the Italians woke up, went to sleep, and they woke up one day, and they woke up in the future. And it, it was a bit like that. Mm -hmm. Well, you grew up in Germany as well. You certainly spent part of your youth in Germany. Um, were you surprised at how quickly it changed there, knowing yeah. that as you do? Yeah, definitely. The, I, it, it, was, it was quite jarring to see. Um, the, the, the downtown would, would be a husk. I was in this little town called uh, Bayreuth. Uh, it's most famous for being the, the site of Richard Wagner's Opera House. 
and every year there's a big festival, big draw, and the the the, the town gets. I think most of its fame and revenue from that festival, and this year was cancelled. And uh, there's, you can see like a gloom in the town. And a friend of mine, he's supposed to work at the festival, but he he, he can't do that now. He's out of a job. I'm in conversation with Field Notes from a Pandemic author, Ethan Liu. Field Notes from a Pandemic: A Journey Through a World Suspended uh, began with an essay about your journey to see your grandfather in China. Uh, what was it like turning that into a book so suddenly? When did it occur to you that this wasn't just a series of articles for uh, a magazine, that this would this would be and could be a book? Mm. So most of the idea actually came from my agent, uh, Rob Firing of Transatlantic. He, he basically planted the seed in my head because we were talking about the second book. So I had already written the first book, but because of the pandemic, that was, that was pushed, pushed the next year. So... Before the pandemic started, we were talking about a second book, and I had a lot of ideas for a second book, but this was not one of mine. This was Rob's, and it was definitely, I guess, uh, it's, it's, it's an experience hard to describe writing uh, in this time, just trying to hit at a moving target, and I, I don't think I had ever been so engrossed in something in my life. Um, I, I don't think I will ever work on such a schedule again. Well, to explain people, now you wrote this book so quickly that your debut book, which was meant to be Once a Bitcoin Miner, Scandal and Turmoil in the Wild West of Cryptocurrency, will no longer be your debut when it comes out in May 2021. So this new book um, is the new one, Field Notes from a Pandemic will be your debut. I guess, and you just answered the question, I suppose, but there was an urgency to this that you just couldn't ignore, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, writing helps me deal with things as well. It's like it's like in Harry Potter, they have this thing called a, a pensive. So you take the thoughts out of your head and put it into like a, a little bowl bowl of liquid, and if your if your brain is your laptop, uh, that ball is like uh, it's like an external hard drive. I think when I write, I offload things from my from my brain. It helps me to to stay focused and it helps me to deal with things. Yeah, it's not I suppose a catharsis as much of it is as a compartmentalization of those thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely not a not a catharsis. I I wish I didn't have to write this book. I wish uh, I wish my my trip had gone as intended, but I think writing it for me, it's it's better than not writing. And we are midway through my interview with Ethan Liu, and it is fascinating stuff. His ideas and arguments in the book are framed around a journey that happened when he left Beijing in January and then had to kind of hopscotch around the world on his way back to Canada. The path of the virus seemed to follow him until he landed safely in quarantine in a small town in Germany where he was able to take stock and start telling the story that formed the backbone of this book. We start this portion of the interview by talking about why he thinks the coronavirus will have a greater impact than SARS. You say that you think that the coronavirus will have a far greater impact than SARS. Uh, why do you think that is? Are we more globalized now than we were 17 years ago? Oh yeah, definitely. And I think that's a, that's a great point that you raised because uh, in, in the book I write that 
uh, China's share of the world economy, how much is integrated into global commerce. That is that is four times the figure of of 2003 when SARS blew up. So uh, when it's four times as connected, I think the the shock waves they they ripple four times as more. Well, then should we have seen this coming in our globalist interconnected world? Most people seem to think that this was a huge surprise. I've only talked to one person who said, "Oh yeah, I, I knew this was coming." Uh, should we have seen it coming? Uh -huh. uh, yeah, that's a that's a good question. I I think certainly some among us have seen it coming, and and, and they were they were definitely right. Uh, the the guy who wrote the, the Black Swan, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, he, he was very adamant that this phenomenon. It is not a black swan because a black swan is something that, that that's hard to predict and that has an oversized impact. But to him, he said like this was perfectly predictable. He actually wrote something quite presciently uh, about a pandemic uh, in that 2007 book. But I think we also live in a world where we just have so much coming at us. We have all sorts of experts predicting all sorts of doom, and all of them are probably correct. But even though we should have seen this pandemic coming, I think it's very hard to know that it would be this pandemic, it would be this virus coming out of China at this time. And you look at world issues through the lens of this pandemic. So just as World War II defined the international uh, world order that we know now, do you think that this pandemic will change everything moving forward? Mm -hmm. I, yep, I, I definitely think it, it will bring a lot of change. and. I think we, we we are seeing it right now with China. China got the virus first. It dealt with it first, and it dealt with it rather shrewdly. It is already restarting its economy uh, when other countries are shutting it down. And if you look at what those think tanks put out, they they talk to to what they say are the sources on the ground, and the Chinese officials they are seeing this as an opportunity to to leapfrog industrially, and that's a direct quote, and. And we see China trying to position itself uh, image-wise as a, as a world leader when it outshined the USA at the, at the World Health Organization. When the US pulled its funding, China stepped right up. And, and all the while, we see the Western world mired in chaos. We see the European Union. They, they did have, a, I think, a, a great um, trillion dollar re relief fund, but the talks up, up to that, it, was marred in bitterness and rancor. And I, I just think uh, the European Union solidarity is kind of fading. And you see the chaos in the US, which is a traditional counterweight to China. So I think in the wake of the plague, we will definitely see power tilt toward the East. I'm in conversation with field notes from a pandemic author, Ethan Liu. Well, do you think that indecision then in these other countries is the greatest enemy? We, we've seen people take half measures. We've seen people not think that it will get much worse than it does. They always seem to be just slightly behind the curves, the countries that have been hit the worst. Is indecision the, the, the biggest enemy of this pandemic? Absolutely. And I think you, you raise a great point. Um, I don't think anyone was truly that prepared for this pandemic, but the, the countries that, that dealt with it well, that dealt with it successfully, they were the ones that were able to move quickly. And, and I think a great example is New Zealand. It, and it was able to move quickly because uh, it had 
great public trust in institutions, that the people trusted their government to, to do the right thing. And you, you see the reverse of that in the US. I think people's trust in government in the US is a pitiful 17%. And you right, even right now, we are seeing the effects of that. And you say that if and when we outlive this pandemic, we outlast it, that uh, everything from healthcare to economies, politics, culture, everything is going to be different. I know in my world, I'm, I've made a living as a film critic for many years. I saw an article in the New Yorker the other day said, well, say goodbye to movie theaters. Uh, it, it's, it's pretty grim. How do you feel about it? Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, you, you are right. It, it is pretty grim. And I think aside from what I think will be the, the, the tilt uh, in terms of geopolitics. I also think that we will live in a, we will live in a larger, more walled up, uh, a meaner world. And not just because of the, the decline of travel and the, the decimation of international supply lines, but also because how a lot of countries, they scrambled for supplies in the beginning of this. The EU is supposed to have a common market, but um, Germany and France, they reacted very quickly by barring exports of uh, protective equipment. And, you know, as I write in the book, we, we, may, we may not long remember the friendships of summer, but we will, we will never forget the frustrations forged in this pandemic winter. You came from uh, the world of journalism and then Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And then you say that crypto people are usually more libertarian, they're for smaller government, and amid this pandemic, there has been almost a shift in sentiment within the crypto community where people are favoring individual sacrifice for the collective good. They say there are no atheists in foxholes, and I think there are no libertarians in pandemics. Uh, has it changed you? Uh -huh. That's a great question. I don't. I don't think it has much, and I. I, I don't think I was ever on uh, on any. On any like uh, extreme ends of the spectrum. And uh, are you working on another book right now during all of this? Uh, no. Um, that th there is the there is that 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 crypto book that is going to come out. Um, I think about fall next year and. There is a, I have an investigative piece to be published by, uh, through CBC in Calgary, which is related to the book. Well, congratulations on that. Congratulations on the book. Um, I hope you're wrong about some of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> me too, Richard, me too. <laughs> but, uh, but I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. It's an absolute pleasure. That was Ethan Liu. His book, Field Notes from a Pandemic, A Journey Through a World Suspended, is available wherever you buy fine books. We're almost at the end of this show, but I wanted to give you a little taste of what's coming next week. Ansley Simpson is a singer and a songwriter. She's been nominated for two Indigenous Music Awards. She's the winner of Best New Artist, and she's also the subject of a new television show called Amplify. I'll tell you all about it next week, but here's a little taste of the interview. The guitar has been my instrument uh, that I play by ear for, for a long time. I was a classically trained piano player for a really long while and that um, developed a whole different set of skills and I could never really attach it to my creative side so guitar was the one for me that I could just pick up and hear where the chords were and hear the melodies so I often start 
I bring a writing book with me wherever I go. Um, and I write, uh, I write as much as I possibly can during the pandemic. That's been a lot less for sure. Um, but I'm always writing. And then at some point, it's funny, some songs start based off of a lyric with a melody. Uh, and sometimes just stay there and I never put them to anything other than just vocal and word. And then other songs I start with a guitar melody or a guitar progression in mind and I try to fit, you know, words that come out um, that join well with that. So yeah, it's honestly, it is a really interesting process writing songs and it's so exciting that people get to see all the different styles of songwriting through this, um, through this project and just, yeah, how it's done, how much work goes into it. I think initially when I write it, I write it for, it's selfish, I guess. I write it for myself. I write it to make sure that I, I feel okay with it. And then I write it for um, Indigenous people, my nation. I'm Anishinaabe. My family's from Alderville First Nation. So I try to write it and with them in mind. And often that takes, you know, consulting with people to make sure that if I've used any traditional elements in my songs that I've done it in a good way, um, that's not misrepresenting or over saying or oversharing something that shouldn't be shared in that way. And then I imagine it being out in the world. Uh, and I think, you know, every songwriter wants their song to be somewhat transformative, if we can be so bold. You know, yeah. you hope that it moves people. You hope that it is something more than, than just passively consumed in the background. Um, you know, I, I hope that, that people really listen. And I hope this for all Indigenous musicians, Black musicians, especially marginalized musicians in particular, um, listen to their lyrics, you know, deep dive, give them a, a really solid listen because their stories aren't the ones that are normally told. That was Ansley Simpson. We'll meet her next week and I'll tell you all about a great new show on APTN called Amplify. She's one of the main players on that show. But that's all the time we have for this week. My thanks to Ansley Simpson, my thanks to Sam Roberts, my thanks to Ethan Liu, but as always, my biggest thanks goes to you, I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.